Hello, this is Snigitha Dekunda, writer for the Trade and Economy Department. I'm Metabaker Jola, also a writer for the Trade and Economy Department. Reese Sadaker for a, um, the American Affairs Department. And I am Afek Shamir, and I write for the Human Rights Department. And this is The Global Generation, the International Youth Politics Forum's global news podcast. The New York Times recently published an article discussing how Fox News told their viewers that the COVID-19 pandemic was a quote-unquote democratic and media-led plot against President Donald Trump, and how spreading this false information to their predominantly elder audience downplayed a deadly disease. This article has reopened a conversation that has been covered by several journalists and educators over the last decade. This is a particularly important topic for IYPF because we're a youth-oriented political platform, and we also take several steps when writing our articles to make sure that we minimize any sort of bias within our reports, and that can include using multiple credible sources due to the fact that we try to include as much fact as possible within our reports. Sort of as a backdrop for this podcast episode, we see that fake news and disinformation has been around basically since the beginning of mass communication, but bias in media spread in mass with the, inventi- the invention of the printing press and pamphlets. So what we know about history is that when you have a group of people in power or just a person in power who wants to get their message across to the greater public, a really good way to do that is by using the media. Now, I alone get like 12 notifications on my phone every day about just news stories from different news sources uh, going on around the world. And this is where I get a lot of my information. Now, when this information is uh, bad information or it's, it's used for a particular agenda, we call this disinformation. Before we really get into the specifics, an important distinction to make is that misinformation is the accidental spread of incorrect info, while disinformation, and what we're going to be using for the majority of this podcast purposes, disinformation is the deliberate spread of bad, incorrect information, and it's what a lot of people generally use to describe what we're going to be talking about It's what people use to broadcast their certain agenda for whatever reason. And now an important statistic is that according to the Oxford Internet Institute, organized social media manipulation has more than doubled since 2017, with 70 countries using computational propaganda to manipulate public opinion. So as time goes on, this issue becomes more and more of something we need to deal with. Sensational news and social media campaigns became big on the internet in 2010, with Pizzagate being one of the most well-known examples of fake news circa 2016, around the time of the U.S. presidential elections. Now, Pizzagate was a pretty sweet name, considering that it was talking about a pizzeria being a front for a human trafficking and sex ring operation, but it led to a lot of civilians actually going to this location and firing rifles inside the store and lots of death threats towards the owner. It was a huge appropriation of what was going on, all based off of a fake story. 
While there have been many issues regarding the specific usage of misinformation, one of the most prominent um, usages that we have seen was recently with the U.S. presidential elections in 2016, and it's also becoming rampant with the 2020 elections. Specifically with 2016, Russian hackers and influence specialists utilized various social media platforms, primarily Facebook and Instagram, to spread false information to sway citizens' voting decisions. While the 2016 Russian influence isn't too well known, Russian trolls and hackers have developed newer methods for disinformation information, making their posts and information much harder to track. And while disinformation may have come from Russia primarily, it comes from all sorts of places. Um, with Trump's 2020 re-election campaign, it was actively engaged in a multi-million dollar campaign whose sole goal was to tunnel a single perspective to view impeachment proceedings through. And this becomes particularly problematic because it's important for citizens when they're voting to understand both sides of a particular issue. Otherwise, they won't be able to make an informed decision or even sometimes the correct decision of what they believe when they're given only a particular set of information. And while every campaign has an end goal of spinning stories in their favor to show that they're on the better side of whatever has happened, it reaches a different end because when it becomes a game of disinformation rather than trying to show all the facts. And while we, be able, while we may be able to discern fake posts from Russian hackers today, it becomes much more difficult when they begin to outsource their work. And um, a troubling CNN article from early March found that in the United States' current election cycle for the 2020 elections, a significant portion of the campaign was outsourced towards trolls in Ghana and Nigeria. But it hasn't just necessarily coerced decisions on a domestic level, because disinformation has affected various nations in the international community in various different ways. I think um, there was a very important example that we can look at um, recently there was a manipulated video of Joe Biden um, and it gained a lot of steam on, on Twitter. And it was also shared by um, President Trump himself. Uh, the video itself showed uh, Joe Biden actually saying we can only reelect Donald Trump. Now, of course, the video cut off, but it is interesting that the full sentence read, um, we can only reelect Donald Trump if in fact we get engaged in this, circular, in this circular firing squad here. Now, it's very important because obviously Joe Biden did not uh, tell the electorate to re-elect Donald Trump, but in fact, he was cut off. Now, the problem is that even if, and Twitter did indeed uh, flag the post, but 20,000 people have already seen the post and it was already shared. Now, people, there was a chance that people did not see that it was flagged by the time that it came out meaning that uh, the misinformation, sorry, the disinformation was actually spread and the consequences were already enacted. Yeah, another instance that we saw with that was around sometime last year where um, there were distorted videos of Nancy Pelosi speaking. And there were also videos that were um, very manipulated that showed that um, she was actually like slurring her words um but that was just a manipulation of the video and it became extremely problematic because um a lot of people take things what they see on the news very seriously and if they see things that make candidates particularly look bad or something that might support another candidate they're forced to look at that and it carries a lot of weight 
regardless of what happens within any sort of set of circumstances, if an individual sees something that is particularly problematic or something that shines out, they will always choose to be fixated upon that. And that's something that becomes particularly problematic because all it takes is one piece of mis or disinformation and it will sway a person's voting decision. And it can be extremely problematic because those the people that we elect are the people who are going to be representing our country. And when they have a biased decision as a result of fake information, then it becomes extremely problematic. I think one of the main faults with disinformation is the fact that it takes so much attention off of actual ongoing crises. For example, with the 2014 Ebola crisis, several American news sources were actually circulating stories where Americans were dealing with cases of Ebola in their state, and it led to a lot of national panic, whereas the main epidemic was actually happening in Africa. So several civilians ended up not paying attention to the actual problem, and that led to way more deaths than we could have probably controlled. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the primary issues is not as much about the actions that we take, but it's more about the information that we receive due to the fact that that's what we always choose to act upon. And when we're given fake information or something that's particularly used to sway us in a particular direction, it can be extremely problematic. And with the recent coronavirus outbreaks, one of the things that we saw was that um, a lot of individuals were choosing to use ibuprofen because they thought that it would have to do um, with a lot of problems with coronavirus, but there was no significant distinction or link between them. And it was a study that was published by the UPenn Journal that was very recent. And we saw so many problems with medicine specifically because it can be extremely problematic because if one person chooses to go out towards the general public and tell the world that um, a specific medicine is a solution to a problem or a disease and it turns out to be false information, it can be extremely problematic because a lot of people would immediately believe that. And on top of that, they would just choose to go on and act upon that information, which can be which can lead to severe health effects for a lot of individuals. Yeah, Trump, I think last week he posted on his Twitter that two medicines, medications when taking together would help lead to some kind of cure for coronavirus. But it's actually lethal when you take them together. However, several U.S. citizens have already seen and retweeted the post. So even though several doctors have already come up and said that this is deadly, don't do it. We don't know what the repercussions are going to be. And this type of information isn't just bad from a this person believes this, this person believes that standpoint. These words have actual weight that can be measured in human lives. I mean, the people who are going on believing these types of bad information about cures to the coronavirus or ways that they can prevent it, uh, if something goes wrong, if they believe and act on this belief um, when they really shouldn't, when it is detrimental to, to their health, this can cause even more deaths directly for that person or indirectly for other people. Yeah, I totally agree. One of the worst issues that we see is that even by the time, for example, governments are able to take down false news or information or condemn any fake information, it's already out there. And 
While it might be very good for the internet to be an open source of information for anyone to access anything, it becomes extremely problematic in the sense that once something is out there, it's out there. And it's going to be very difficult to get rid of. And even by the time the government is able to stop doing something, for example, taking down fake pieces of information regarding security threats, individuals will already be fearful and they'll already choose to start acting recklessly, which can endanger not only their lives, but the lives of a lot of other people. It's also important to note that the information that passes around the internet has a lot of emphasis about entertainment rather than information. And the, the conflict that we have between the truth and what is interesting causes a lot of problems. Now, what tends to spread more is what's entertaining rather than what's true. I found a lot of content discussing how this specific method was mostly for undermining democracy and you can definitely see that in the way many groups are responding because by creating this problem you're adding to the eons old debate of what is and is not my freedom of expression but in other countries that are more totalitarian and dictatorships it's a form of propaganda controlling the media to keep you under control but that's also wrong so I, I don't know. It might be a situation of what's the lesser evil, and in that case, many agree it's democracy, but some might argue against, but generally people agree with democratic principles. European governments have created SWAT teams for fake news, and it's really our only current example of a government handling the crisis of disinformation. And the European Commission have already published rules on tackling this kind of mistreatment, the European Union, ha the European Union has a set action plan tackling misinformation that started in 2018, and they have also procured the Code of Practice on Disinformation, which is the first worldwide self-regulatory set of standards to fight disinformation, and was also signed by several online platforms such as Google and Facebook. But they do still deal with some media bias towards political candidates. We're seeing that with Brexit, um, political disputes. We're seeing that. Um, with France and their elections, but it's much more controlled than, we're, than what we're seeing in any other area in the, in the world. And considering disinformation is such a serious issue that isn't really being addressed from the top down, it is really great to see uh, these European governments actually doing something about it in terms of legislation, because this isn't something that you can just post and then unpost. Like we've been saying, once something is on the internet that is disinformed, that is bad information for other people to consume, then it's on the internet forever. It doesn't matter whether you take it down, the damage has been done. So the best way to address this problem is to prevent it. And that's exactly what European governments have been doing. By disincentivizing people to broadcast disinformation, Europe is taking the right step in making the online platforms of our world a safer, more informed, more progressive place to be. But not only is it that European governments are handling the situation, it's that they're doing it together. It's the European Union that's handling this. And that's, I think, really indicative of the fact that the internet is a global platform. It connects so many various political views and civilians from all around the world. So because they're handling it together and they're taking the issue as kind of a regional thing, it's allowing it to be controlled at a much easier and 
I guess, more achievable pace. Right. So I think that's interesting, specifically with the European Union, that I think that they've been taking a lot of successful steps with their action plan and the code of practice on disinformation. However, I think when we try to use governmental policies, we began to reach a gray area due to the fact that it's important for governments to recognize that with the internet, it sort of becomes a question of censorship versus preventing disinformation. And I think a lot of governments, for example, um, might be choosing to go in the wrong side of that border. So I think it's particularly difficult to frame a lot of successful policies due to the fact that they would have to create specific rules such that they're able to shoot down disinformation or misinformation, but they're also allowing individuals to still represent their own ideas. Because I think it becomes a question of, with a lot of governments, not as much of how can we prevent the spread of disinformation versus how can we control the information that gets out? So it becomes a question of censorship, which can be extremely problematic with that sense. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I mean, it's definitely a really fine line between infringing on the people's rights to say what they want to say and promoting the general welfare. But I believe that what the European governments, what the EU is doing in regards to this when somebody is knowingly spreading wrong information, that's different from somebody accidentally saying something because they uh, they heard it somewhere else. Now, when you have people with bad intent spreading bad information, then it becomes something that should be punished. But that's the thing. Sometimes it's not really clear which people have the wrong intent and which people are just misinformed. Uh, on the issue and are spreading the information that they heard elsewhere. So I guess it's the tactic that the European Union is using is kind of to spread a kind of fear for if somebody spreads disinformation, I mean, intentionally, that there will be repercussions. And whether this policy, whether this legislation actually has the results that we hope it should have is still really up to debate. I think what's quite ironic um, is that the European Union developed these tactics while uh, the UK was still um, inside the EU. I mean, it still is. It's still in the developing stages of leaving. Uh, but one of the biggest forms, as we will see uh, in a little bit when we'll discuss it, of misinformation and disinformation uh, was uh, the Brexit campaign. The Brexit campaign was very purposefully targeting people um, on themes such as immigration, um, on the NHS, and it is actually proven that many of the promises uh, were false and the European Union didn't handle it the way that they promised that it would. So uh, moving on to the British elections in December 2019, um, as we are on a related topic, um, it's interesting to think that it's a very good comparison to the upcoming US elections because they provide a microscopic element uh, to the misinformation that we can be expecting in the next couple of months leading up to the elections. So a couple of examples that we should note in December um, on the Conservative Party end, um, the Conservative Party apologized after spreading a video that they edited to make it look like the Labour lawmaker in charge of 
the party's Brexit policy could not answer a simple question about exiting the European Union. Now, obviously, this video um, was edited, it was wrong, um, but uh, they were forced to apologize, which showed that um, they did admit uh, that they twisted the facts. Also, um, the Conservatives bought ads on Google so that in searches for Labour's policy manifesto, the top result was a website that criticised the proposals. Again, twisting of facts. Um, Interestingly, during a debate between Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn, the two uh, um, leaders of the Conservatives and Labour, the official Twitter account um, that represents the press department of Johnson's Conservative Party uh, changed its name from the CCHQ Press, the Conservative campaign headquarters, to Fact Check UK. Now, the account had gone from being clearly associated with a political party to appearing to be an independent fact checker. Only users that were familiar with the obscure CCHQ acronym would have known that they, what they were looking at. Now, the account went on to make contentious statements presented as facts in response to things that Corbyn said during the debate. And at the end, the account declared Johnson as the winner. That was just that was just on the Conservative end. On the Labour end, Jeremy Corbyn cited documents that suggested the Conservative Party would weaken the NHS in a post-Brexit trade deal with the United States. The documents turned out to be linked to a Russian disinformation campaign. Again, could not have been trusted by the public, but were. I think we're seeing a reoccurring trend across all of these, or most of these examples, where foreign involvement is typically used to spread disinformation. And I think that also brings into the conversation how xenophobia and just general foreign tension can also play into the spread of disinformation. Because even though it is wrong of other countries to meddle in international, sorry, in domestic issues, it's putting a lot of negative attention to the general public of that country. So during the US elections and with the British elections, you see Russian involvement and you immediately think, okay, we can't trust the Russians anymore, even though they are a very important political ally for several countries. All of these examples kind of follow the same idea that demonstrates that it's actually pretty easy to make people believe what you want them to believe if you have a broad platform and can access just a lot of people. Like with Russia and the US and even with Britain, all you need is a ton of bots on Twitter or all you need is some ads going to a certain party that they then promote, and then you've automatically reached millions of people with that information. And this is all because of the modern developments in technology. This None of this would have been possible like 20 years ago. And it just shows how, how crazy the world is becoming, how the political sphere is becoming more and more ingrained in technology, and how people can kind of finesse their way around the use of technology to get people to believe what they want to believe without having like actual substantive arguments by just having information that sounds catchy that people latch onto because they might have had like a notion of that similar thought before. And all, all you need is one post, one message 
they get broadcast on the internet, accessing millions of people who then kind of become a monolith on that same thought. I think this shows how reliant disinformation is on the general unawareness of the public. Because when you look at the claim that political candidates are hunting squirrels or that climate change advocates are stopping firefighters, if you have background knowledge of these situations, you automatically think that's dumb because you have the basic understanding of what climate change advocates are supporting and what normal political candidates do. But you also understand that you don't necessarily know everything that could be pertaining to that person or to that movement. So because the general public is so unaware of what's going on with specific issues, it leads to a reliance and an unconfidence in media sources, which is really dangerous because once you have all these counter-arguing narratives that are all disagreeing with each other, then you have to kind of step back and really check all of your sources. And most of the time, people don't have the time to check every single fact that shows up in a political campaign during election season or in the middle of a crisis like the Australian bushfires. You don't have the sources to look at what's going on with climate change advocates because you're more focused on what's going on with your own home. It's a lack of awareness of political topics, but more so it's just an inability to access the proper resources because you're seeing so many fake sources posing as reliable. I think what's interesting about that is going back to what Matthew said that 20 years ago, we, we wouldn't really see this. Now, 20 years ago, there was a very limited amount of people that had a significant voice for the public to hear. Now, with social media and just generally the internet, every single person has a voice. And that is dangerous. I mean, you, you could say it's it's the liberty, like individual liberty and the freedom of, of speech, but it, it poses a problem. Yeah, I think that brings up one of the most interesting dualities with the freedom of access towards the ability to represent your own opinions. Because while it is good that everyone has a voice, it becomes very difficult to ensure that the information that we share with each other is entirely accurate. And when that happens, like um, Mate said, all it takes is one person for the spread to continue. And once it's out there, it's permanently out there, regardless of what we would want to do about it. And furthermore, I think that... um, Another interesting thing about this entire situation is that while it's good that everyone has access to it, um, two particular pieces of information, something that Singda mentioned earlier, is that all it really takes is a little bit of understanding to understand when something is legitimate and when something is a complete piece of disinformation. But like she said earlier, all it really takes is a little bit of a lack of trust with one piece of disinformation, and it can lead to a whole snowball effect in which we choose not to believe anything we see. So it becomes entirely problematic in that sense that we can see that there are always good things, but they can always lead to extremely adverse effects upon society. Honestly, there are several people in the government or in governments who view disinformation as a potential form of warfare 
that could potentially lead to cyber attacks. And the U.S. government is very aware of this potential because it could lead to a lot of civil conflict, not necessarily like a civil war, but we have gone to war over a lot less. I wouldn't be surprised if incorrect understanding of political views or with political candidates could start a digital wildfire. I mean, I wouldn't say that it's going to lead to war in the traditional sense, because now that everybody is nuclear, everybody has these super weapons, yeah, for sure, for war sure. is like very dangerous. But yeah, the notion of some somehow there being like a digital war where people from like both sides of or just people from different countries engage with each other through like Twitter or Facebook or some other online means. That's really interesting. And in a way, I guess we're already seeing that because like the beef that happens between people on Twitter is very real. And I mean, just scrolling through my timeline, I see people calling each other horrible things all the time. And a lot of the time, it's based on nationality or some certain type of belief. And that's that's why disinformation is so dangerous. People are already charged. People already care about a lot of things. So in a way, they're, they're already primed and ready to go on a particular subject matter. And all you need to do as somebody who wants to persuade a group of people is kind of put in that last little drop to make the platform blow up, to make the people really go off on whatever you want them to believe. Yeah, as I said earlier, technology is a relatively new medium, especially for politics. So whereas in earlier centuries, we've definitely seen forms of propaganda and conflicting views of a political candidate. But now that we have the internet, what makes it more unreliable is the speed at which disinformation can spread. Because you can put something out there, like a tweet, and you could potentially start an international conflict between two major national heads of nations just by in like less than 10 minutes, honestly, because Twitter and Facebook and all these social media platforms, although they are meant to be conversational, in recent years, they have taken a significantly political turn. One of the things that um, was particularly apparent, like you said, with one specific tweet that can spur an international conflict was one of the issues that we had with Donald Trump and um, Kim Jong-un back um, a couple of years ago when we had the whole issues with the deranged, uh, quote, dotard, as Trump would say in his tweets, and the whole issues with uh, Rocket Man. And one of the things that we saw with that was that whether or not North Korea had the ability to attack the United States, it still led to a lot of panic and a lot of fear within the American public. And it spurred a lot of international relations issues between the United States and North Korea over something that was as simple as a Twitter feud. You see them every day and you can see them if you just look it up, but it becomes completely different when it becomes an issue of um, a global leader choosing to take a piece of information and spin it in a way that can make them feel superior or choose to take that information in a way that can attack another country. And it becomes extremely problematic because in today's day and age, we've seen various issues in which they can escalate and they can lead to a lot of problems within the international community. On January 11th, 
2020, incumbent Tai Ing-wen won the Taiwanese presidential election after a campaign fighting slander from China. Ing-wen has been an advocate for Taiwanese independence, a position that greatly disturbs China. So the Communist Party during the Communist Party of China during her campaign readily expressed their dislike for the Taiwanese president because she did not support a greater alliance with China. Now, what happened during her campaign is that Chinese news sources blasted her for things that were not true, such as faking her college degree and being a lesbian who wanted to corrupt Taiwanese children, also not true, and working with Japan and the U.S. against Taiwan's interests. These blatant pieces of disinformation came at varying degrees of success, because even though that Ing Wen won with 57% of the vote, Chinese news sources were everywhere during her campaign. There were YouTube videos of people who were working for the Chinese National Radio impersonating Taiwanese citizens who accused the current president of Taiwan for blasphemous things. And these videos, these types of videos got into the hands of a lot of people. It got in front of the eyes of many Taiwanese voters. And this is another crucial example of how foreign meddling can can disrupt an entire democratic process. When there's an authoritarian neighbor looking to sway an election a certain way, that is a great threat to the democracy of Taiwan. What's notable about this example is that Ing Wen won her election with about 57% of the vote, and that's largely because Taiwan was already on very high alert for possible manipulations from Beijing that could potentially swing the election. And that leans into what we were earlier talking about, how having background knowledge of the subject matter can help you easily identify what's what's incorrect information and what's not. Yeah, so another prominent example that was extremely problematic quite recently were the elections in Afghanistan, where a U.S. special representative ensured that there would be no inauguration. And the only condition was that there would be an agreement between the two political leaders due to the fact that both of them, during their own um, campaigns, declared themselves the leader of the country. But the U.S. decided that they would try to be an impartial arbiter, but they've directly provided funds to campaigns, and they've aided um, specific campaigns with propaganda and disinformation to support their own agenda. And this becomes extremely problematic, not only for Afghanistan, but also the entire international community, because U.S. diplomats are showing that they're willing to go and take on controversial missions, talking to social media, or going behind people's backs. And all this does is that it serves to destabilize the situation with an already disputed election and when the fact is that the results are extremely disputed on both sides of the issue it becomes problematic when another country decides to intervene within to have their own agenda and further their own political ends so while we've been discussing this throughout the entirety of this podcast one of the most um, prominent issues that we see with disinformation is the effect that it has within our trust on the media We become a lot more skeptical by the minute every time we see something that's a little bit suspect towards us, and we can either choose to listen to everything or nothing. But another issue that was brought up throughout this entire podcast is that there's always an increased susceptibility. Because once something is out there, it's difficult to weed out and isolate. And with today's technology, it's so advanced 
that you probably wouldn't even notice when something is a fake piece of information. And all it serves to do is harm the social order because of what we've seen with the various examples that we've provided, specifically with Russia, Afghanistan, Taiwan, is that foreign meddling within democratic processes is a blatant slap in the face towards liberty due to the fact that it misrepresents public opinion, while it also messes with who's going to be leading the country for a particular period of time. And this also brings up a broader idea of a sense of malinformation, which is very similar to disinformation in the sense that it's information that's intended to harm. And it becomes a lot more common and it stigmatizes certain groups of people while creating divides within communities. An example that was brought up earlier in this podcast was that when we saw a video of Nancy Pelosi addressing the United States, there was a re-upload that slowed down the recording, actually, to slur her words and make her seem drunk. And this becomes extremely problematic due to the fact that it means that we would have a lack of trust within our political leaders, which only serves to harm our social order and stigmatize communities and polarize groups against each other. In the United States, putting a limit on what can be said on the internet directly violates our constitutional right of the freedom of speech, which is very important to our democratic foundation. And it's very similar to the national security versus personal liberty debate. There are some rights we need to give up for the greater good, but where do we end up drawing the line? And with social media organizations like Facebook, Instagram, and Snapchat, it could be beneficial to hire professional fact checkers and develop filters to prevent false information from spreading. But Mark Zuckerberg came under a lot of fire for his defense of the Facebook policy allowing fake ads, saying that people should be able to judge the character of politicians themselves. But as we said earlier, many people either don't have the time or they already have a lot of distrust for media outlets because of all the fake news that is being exposed. It has to come down to individualized support. As long as there is communication, there will be disinformation. But until policymakers and governments figure out how to control propaganda without taking away our civil rights, it's up to us to make sure our opinions are coming from fact and not fiction. It's important to understand how disinformation can misguide us and cause division. And as time goes on, it'll exist in newer forms in our rapidly changing world. But fear-mongering only serves to drive away reliable sources of information and undermines our society. If we want to effectively mitigate its spread, we need to have resilience and perseverance against disinformation campaigns. It's up to us to fact-check our sources, report cases of fake information, and look at the other side's perspective. Talk with your friends, your family, and policymakers to bring awareness to the issue. With enough encouragement, today's youth can bring real change. Thank you so much for tuning into the second episode of The Global Generation, the International Youth Politics Forum's new podcast. The next episode will be released in two weeks. For more information on disinformation, political bias, and topics covering everything from geomilitary relations to human rights, please check out our website at www.iypforum.org and follow us on our Instagram at iypforum for more updates. See you next time on The Global Generation.